This is Still Rowing, a podcast where members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints share their authentic stories of struggle and triumph on their journey of discipleship, and just why they are choosing faith in the restored Church of Jesus Christ. Hey y'all, Still Rowing is about a year and a half old now, and we've hit some cool milestones. This podcast has to date been played 21,414 times across the United States and in over 50 countries around the world. I often get asked, so how many subscribers do you have? And I just shrug, I honestly don't know. In truth, I'm not really concerned about the number of subscribers or how many downloads I have. What I do hope though, is that this podcast is reaching the one the individual who needs their faith in Christ and his love for them affirmed because they're struggling. With that said, will you help me reach the one? You can do that by texting your favorite episode to a friend, by posting an episode on social media, or leaving a rating and review on iTunes. All of these methods will help us spread the word about Still Rowing. I truly believe that these stories carry power to help heal hearts and bring others closer to Christ. So thank you for your help in spreading these stories of hope. Now on to the show. You're going to love this one. Caden Carlos is known for speaking about his intimate conversion to the gospel of Jesus Christ as he transitioned from using and dealing drugs through the ages of 12 to 18 to being called to serve a full-time mission in Baltimore, Maryland. His story shows us how to never lose hope and to trust in the saving power of the atonement. Caden is also a husband, speaker, mentor, and manages a sales office full-time for Vivint Smart Home. So welcome to the Still Rowing Podcast. I'm Tara McCausland, and welcome, Caden. I'm grateful that you invited me to be on here today. I think our listeners will really be blessed by your story and by your faith. But to start, uh, just to set the stage, can you give us a little bit of insight into your early years and family of origin? I uh, I grew up in a small town, Crin, Utah. Um, It's right outside Brigham City. I was there from my like pretty much my whole childhood. So I was born out that way. Grew up there until the age of eight. Right around that time, my mom and my father. Um, had been going through their own difficulties and um, both had their own um, issues with addiction. They separated. Um, My father moved to Ogden, Utah. My mom took me and the kids and I mean, me and my brother, my sister had moved out of the house and we moved into a a duplex in Brigham City, Utah. Um, So right around that time, my mom like, I guess to support us, she was dealing drugs and been pretty deep into her own habit at that point. She was uh, addicted to meth. I think that was her, her major addiction at that point in her life. Um, hmm. She had she had previously dealt with or battled with other things, but I guess right around that time is when the gospel was introduced to, to me, I guess, at that point. My mom we were in this duplex for about a year or so and I can't remember if it was missionaries that came knocking on our door first or I think it might have been a senior couple someone made a connection with my mom and she started uh, attending church every occasion kind of going back and forth 
um, was really going through her own like psychosis if you know what that is just like mm. would battle with uh you know different far out ideas and um so church to her i think started off just being a, a go-to to feel safe away from like all the chaos that was going on in her life um and it eventually got to a point where this uh senior couple um just kind of called her out on her crap and told her she needed to change and my mom longed for change and they invited her to read the book of mormon and told her if she did so that that she would be able to overcome her addiction she really just took that challenge in stride and began reading the book of mormon got to a point where the desire to get high began to subside the desire to change um, came and so um, that became a very crucial part of, part of my life because I saw this chaos over the a couple years of my mom and my father separating and my mom turning to drugs. And yes, I was young. I didn't know completely what was going on, but I did know that my family was dysfunctional. And so at this point of her reading the Book of Mormon and and striving to come unto Christ, she um, quit using. And you can immediately see the change in in her like attitude, her behaviors. Um, she treated me differently. She treated my brother differently. And she she truly longed for our happiness. Now this is I can't remember if I was just barely turning nine or or where it was at, but. Um, of course, as she was coming out of the gospel, she, by the way, grew up in the church. So it was just a matter of her being reactivated and, mm -hmm. and, and so forth and going through that repenting process. But she desired for me, of course, to um, be baptized and to take the missionary lessons. And I just, I took it in stride. I developed a love for the church at a very early age because of how it impacted my mom. So that was pretty crucial. Um, we ended up uh, moving out of this duplex into uh, a really beautiful home um, in Brigham City uh, by the cemetery. And my dad, um, who had been battling with his own um, illnesses, like he, he was in and out of the hospital, uh, was on dialysis, had had his leg ap amputated. Um, like he was just going through a lot, but what was interesting in the midst of all that happening, like my mom being converted, my family uh, began to reconcile. And, and so my dad moved in with us and we were all under the same roof, which was pretty key um, for us. And it was pretty cool to see, uh, especially in his last days. But yeah, we were, we were living together for a couple years he passed away in 2004 i think i was 10 actually going to turn 11 hmm. um but yeah that was pretty pretty focal point too like uh when my dad passed away we were renting this home um in fact i think we had a, a rent to own thing going on 
and we were six months away from being able to actually acquire the home and um, next thing we knew we had a, a an eviction notice on the door and this is my father passed away in October October 6th uh, this is like three days before Christmas the landlord at the time wasn't paying the mortgage on the house um, and we didn't know so the, I think it was the day after Christmas we were we left that house and that started kind of a new journey. My mom had been battling with a form of like liver cancer and uh, was going through chemotherapy like prior to my, my dad passing away. Um, so that was pretty big too. So like her health was just barely getting, like she was just barely getting her health back. Mm -hmm. So we we like moved to this, this other house and we were renting there and, it just seemed to be like kind of like a really dark point of our our lives because everything that was going on it just seemed like there was this big cloud hanging over our family my mom I remember like I would get home from school and she'd be either at work she was a waitress at the time or she'd be tucked back in her room and she would just hang out back there and just smoke cigarettes that just seemed to be the pattern for a few months she was kind of on and off with church and then the, that spring, um, my sister was looking for a house and uh, there was a home right around the corner that was for sale. And my mom, I think, took note of it because my sister was looking for it or looking for a home. And then next thing we knew, we were buying this house for our family. My mom was acquiring it. I remember just one day we were like, because it, it happened so quick. Next thing we're moving. We have all this stuff. We don't know how we're going to move this stuff over to the house. My mom's bawling and having a really bad day overwhelmed. And we get a knock on the door and it's the bishop and the missionaries and a bunch of the ward family there to um, help us move, <laughs> which mm. was pretty cool. Yeah. And so, yeah, we moved into this home and I don't know. It was just such a big difference in terms of what was taking place in our life. It seemed like there was kind of hope and light at the end of the tunnel of this dark period. And my mom ended up quitting smoking cigarettes. She was striving to go to the temple. And, you know, I was getting to the point where I was going to, um, well, I, I guess I wasn't quite 12 yet, but I think I was still 11 at that point in, my mom asked me to, uh, she felt inspired that I should, should receive my patriarchal blessing. This is important because it kind of plays a very crucial part of my life in terms of how I felt like Heavenly Father's purpose, what his purpose was for me and kind of how I fit in this world. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I met with the bishop. He gave the, the green light on it. and I received this patriarchal blessing and really talked about um you know god's love for me his purpose for me in this life callings that i would receive and it outlined serving an lds mission and so at that point in my life i felt like a sense of direction at a very early age that is young to receive a, a patriarchal blessing but it's clear that you needed it for yeah. what was coming <laughs> 
<laughs> because you yeah. were going to need uh, a vision of what you could become. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely right. It, I mean, at the age of 12 is when I first was introduced to drugs for the first time, alcohol specifically. I mean, that started off with, uh, you know, me going to a friend's party that I was invited to. The mom had acquired alcohol for the kids. And, you know, that, that started me drinking for the first time. A couple months later, I tried smoking weed for the first time. And next thing I know, I'm going to concerts. And, you know, this was all within a summer. And then I go into class that next year. And, you know, I ex- end up experimenting with cocaine. And that kind of gave me a bad taste in my mouth. I, I, I got really sick um, because I, I was mixing cocaine with uh, methadone. And wow. I was so tiny at the time that I... I, I just got so sick and I don't know if I was overdosing or what, but I was out of it for a good day and a half. Um, and that kind of turned me away from the hard stuff for a while. But um, I tell that just to kind of give an indication on how like crazy it was going from, you know, moments before seeing this change within my mom's life and having all that to being introduced to drugs. And then having it at my disposal because of, you know, my friends and my, my brother specifically, it kind of came at my fingertips. So I think you're absolutely right. You know, it's like, I think back to receiving that patriarchal blessing, Heavenly Father was aware of me and knew that that would end up playing a crucial role. But, but yeah, that's like kind of an introduction towards my early part of my years. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, and I appreciate that you point out that you did see such a transformation in your mom when she really started embracing and, and allowing the gospel to become a part of her. And I think sometimes when we grow up in the church and we go to church every week, that's just kind of our culture and we adopt the, the lifestyle of the gospel, so to speak, we don't recognize what a gift <laughs> the gospel is and the commandments because we're we're just used to it being that way but the commandments are are such a protection and can totally. uh, can bless us with so much peace and ultimately joy and so i like that you make that distinction because i think sometimes for those of us who who are in the church we grow up in the church we don't appreciate what we have because we haven't seen the other side <laughs> so yeah. So you, you were introduced to alcohol. You got into some pretty heavy drug use within a summer, you said. So when did this really start to evolve into true addiction? And eventually, I know you started dealing. Can you tell more about that? Yeah. When I was, when I was like 13 and a half, 14, um, my buddy, his, his uncle had passed away and left him and his mom a, a lump sum of money. And this was like my best friend at the time when that happened, his mom was battling with alcoholism and we just had a lot of money at our fingertips. In fact, we, at that age, we were, we were stealing money. And we, I think we, in the span of a year and a half, we stole anywhere from 25 to $40,000. Wow. Literally we'd take an ATM card. He knew the, the number and he would pull it out. And his mom was spending so much money at the time. She didn't, she never knew. Um, Eventually he got caught and so forth. But 
we had money at our fingertips. And at that point, I developed a, a love for money. And with being 14 years old and having money at your fingertips, we, we spent a lot of money on drugs. And we were going to raves all the time, uh, buying jars of ecstasy. You know, we would, we just had all this stuff at our fingertips. Like we were a bunch of kids that didn't know what we were doing, but we had a desire to, you know, party and so forth. So like, it was, I don't know, it was just a really, really, really bad combination of things that were taking place. What was the awareness on your family's part? I guess you said your brother was involved with introducing you to drugs. Was your mom completely unaware? Yeah, my mom became very aware, but um, especially when I was like 13 and a half, 14, but she was working 12 hour shifts, rotating three on three off. Hmm. Um, so like, she's a, a widowed mom, you know, like, like there's not like, she tried to reel it in as best she could, but it got to a point where I think she was so overwhelmed that, that, uh, it just ended up like giving me more freedom to do as I pleased. I, hmm. I guess I didn't, I didn't really have the chains on me at the time. So I see. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, really good question. My brother at the time is doing his own thing. So all that was going on around 13, 14. And then right around um, the age of, you know, 15, my buddy had got caught. We no longer had this money, you know, at our fingertips. And um, it was crazy going from this lifestyle to being this broke kid again. And my buddy had moved to Vegas and and uh, I was just hanging around with my other buddies and we had went from having this lifestyle to nothing. And it eventually got to the point where it was like, okay, well, what can we do to, to get money? That's where I was introduced to heroin for the first time. I had learned that a couple of guys that were older than us would go down to Salt Lake City and that they could pick up from the um, cartel up there and they could come back to Brigham City and you know, double their money. So if we went down there with a hundred bucks, we could go, you know, spend that, come back, make 200 was the idea. And so I had been selling, you know, weed off and on at the time and I had a little bit of money. So I ended up trying it and we went down there, came back and it worked. And that gave me an introduction to a whole nother world. So right around the age of 16, I was doing that. Um, I began to experiment with the drug myself along with my buddies. Um, over the course of the next two years, there was just kind of a roller coaster of different things that were taking place. Um, I would be going all out and making as much money as possible. And then I would catch, you know, some charges, um, you know, like little stuff like uh, paraphernalia or an alcohol ticket. Um, no felony charges, but stuff that would put me on probation. I would clean my act up for a few months, get off probation. I'll go right back to what I was doing. But that was the pattern for for a couple of years. In this article that the Deseret News did on you, they mentioned that you got to a point where you couldn't go for a very long time without shooting up. So you were dealing and you were deeply addicted is that correct at this point at 16? Yeah. So um, it got to a point where 
like right towards the end of my drug use, obviously I was doing more drugs than I was able to, to deal. Yeah. I just, I, I would find myself caught up in a bind all the time where I would owe, you know, certain people money. And I was trying to still live the lifestyle that I was living, but still trying to maintain this habit. So yeah, I couldn't go 12 hours without feeling like I would start to withdraw. I have addiction that runs in my family, not substance addiction so much, but I know that addiction in general is very difficult to overcome. And many people are really never able to shake those addictive chains in this life. So I'm curious because you were, you were in this life deep, you were addicted to heroin, you were dealing and uh, probably in the midst of a pretty rough crowd. What was the turning point for you? And how were you able to find a life outside of this to find sobriety? I, I wish I could just pinpoint one event where it was like, yes, like this was it. But really it was a series of, of things that were taking place where God was intervening in my life. Um, for instance, like when I was 11 years old and I received that patriarchal blessing, I, I knew I, I had felt like father had had a purpose for me that he had a plan specifically for me and it was so apparent like i i could just i could literally pinpoint that at that point in my life when i had received that like i felt that and my mom was so good at at distilling that within me at that point from then on any time that something happened that was spiritual i would always reflect on that so like the first experience that I could recall where it was kind of like a dramatic one, I was 14. Uh, my, my buddy's mom, who was, you know, battling with alcoholism, she was diagnosed with liver failure. Um, and I remember like the day that we found out, I remember looking at her crying, how fearful she was and, and seeing everything that was taking place. And this was my best friend's mother and I had loved her, um, you know, deeply. I still love her deeply. Um, she, uh, but she was going through this and, and I remember my immediate reaction was like, Oh, like she needs God. And it's, what's funny is literally two missionaries came knocking on their door and me at 14 years old told her to let him in. Like I encouraged her to, and she did. And she took the missionary lessons. In fact, she was on hospice at the time, uh, was told she had two to two weeks to a month to live. And she began taking these lessons. And what's interesting is I saw a miracle take place in her life. I watched her enter into the waters of baptism, um, be confirmed into the church, receive multiple blessings. And I watched this diagnosis of her, the doctor telling her that she had, you know, weeks to live um, to her being healed. I, and I, I watched hospice, you know, go from being in her home, taken away to the doctors looking at her and telling her her liver was completely back to normal. So that was pretty impactful at an early age. Um, I knew that God was real and I was constantly reminded by it. And that was a, the first dramatic experience. Fast forward uh, 16 years of age. I remember my mom had grounded me because of some stuff I did and she was going through so much. And normally I would never listen, but I decided one night that I was going to listen to her. 
my she went off to work and it was a Halloween night and my buddies came over and you know swayed me to to come to this party and I remember going and disobeying my mom and leaving to this party and you know and ended up like not going to the actual party went and kicked it with my buddy at his house and I had one of the most dramatic spiritual experiences of my life where I witnessed the power of the adversary. I, I, without going into detail, I, I, I gained a, a sure witness that the adversary was real. I, I knew for certain that there were powers that were pinned to destroy us and, and try to, to do whatever they possibly could to hinder father's plan. And I, I don't want to go into detail, but I, I witnessed something that, that completely gave me a sure understanding that, um, that the adversary was real. And in that same token, um, I also witnessed the power of father and how he was willing to protect us. Um, so that was dramatic. I don't want to go too much into that, but of course, yeah. Um, and then that was that was the big aha moment in a way where at 16 years of age, I had finally repented for the first time in years. Um, that was pretty crucial. I ended up having a, a sobriety uh, spell of like three months at that time where I had repented. I had every intent to get my life together. Um, unfortunately, I fell back into what I was doing. But and then. Fast forward to me being 18, I, the final wake up moment was seeing my buddy overdose in, in front of me and checking his pulse and knowing that he was gone and there was no breath and I had no one else to call upon but God. And I sat there praying with this friend of mine in my arms and having father answer my prayer and him take a breath. And all of a sudden there was a pulse again. That was a miracle. Hmm. Um, there's a lot more that goes into all that, but like, I could tell you countless other stories that happened in between that too, but there was just so many events where father was so willing to meet me where I was at. I just had to be willing to listen. And if I, I don't think if it was for my mom who at an early age felt inspired for me to get a patriarchal blessing to, um, two missionaries coming knocking at my buddy's door uh, to God meeting me in the most unfortunate circumstance of me being 16 and having that happen and him saving me like to, you know, him, him being there for me when my buddy overdosed, like there's just so many events where his, his arms were stretched out. And that is so beautiful, Caden. I think you may have heard of the book called Believing Christ. So often as Christians or as members of the church, we may believe in Christ, but do we believe him? Do we believe that his grace is sufficient to pull us out of these depths that we may not think <laughs> we or others can come out of? But I love your story so much because I think it, it shows us that God will meet us where we are at, that we are loved always and that his grace is sufficient 
if we are willing to turn our hearts over to him. And so I know that there was a conversation that you had with your, I believe it was your uncle that started you thinking about serving a mission. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I, I had, at that point, I had a, a couple months clean off heroin. Um, I was still doing other things, drinking, uh, smoking weed. Um, I was just really kind of straying away from really the, the, the hard stuff, I guess. But uh, I, I was just to a point where I was kind of getting sick of it all and I was lacking purpose. I was in my senior year of high school and um, I was really behind there. I didn't know if I was going to graduate. I had a, another experience that led me to think outside myself. I, my uncle was a, a pretty spiritual guy and I reached out to him and explained to him kind of what happened and was asking him what it all meant. And um, I just remember him like being really hurt with where I was at in my life. And you can just tell he cared deeply. Um, he had given me a, a baby blessing when I was younger. And uh, he just reminded me of what he felt. And he had given me that blessing. Let me to reflect on uh, my patriarchal blessing. And I just remember asking him, well, what do I do? Like, how do I get out of this? And uh, to be honest, he made me feel kind of really hopeless. He, he made me feel like uh, he, he was just kind of very real and was like, look, you got a lot to do, a lot to change. Um, and then he, he asked me a question. I remember him saying, well, what do you, what do you want out of this life? Like, what do you, what do you really want out of it? And the only thing I could think of was, you know, my patriarchal blessing saying that I should serve a mission. And I said, well, I would, I would like to be a missionary. He took that really serious. And he said, well, I, I could promise you this, that if you became worthy to be a, a missionary and you served, that that would be your restart button, that that would put you back on the path that father wanted, wants you to be on and that you would be able to fulfill the purposes which he needs you to fulfill. And I felt that was true. And so I began to go through a repentance process. I called my bishop, I think that same day or the next day. Yeah. And I, and that began the journey. I know that the repentance process is, it's very personal and it's often very painful as we work toward the, the changes that we need to make, making amends with yeah. God and, with our fellow men, what can you tell us about that process for you? And, and how did you see the Lord's hand as you, as you work through that repentance process? Reflecting on it now, I realized how serious it was. Um, I don't know if I quite understood the magnitude of it then. I felt it in a sense, and I took it serious. But now that I reflect, I realize that there was pain attached to it, that there was thinking patterns and habits that were developed that needed to change. And that didn't happen all at once. In fact, I still, to this day, feel like, like there's, those things are still being sanctified, that mm -hmm. that process is, is still being worked on daily. Um, but as I reflect on the specific events, then I, 
I uh, was challenged to read the Book of Mormon from page to uh, from cover to cover. Um, that was crucial in the process. Uh, attending my church meetings, um, becoming worthy to partake of the sacrament, receiving the the Melchizedek priesthood, being able to serve others like all those things were part of the process. But I don't know. I th- I think back then I think it what's crucial at that moment in my life was just developing faith and acting upon that faith and not wavering from it. Well, I love that you, that you move forward with faith, believing that God could, could make you whole, that he could heal you, that you could be forgiven. I think so often, again, going back to that idea of believing Christ versus believing in Christ. One thing that often holds us back is we think I am way beyond what Christ can forgive. And that, that's the adversary. Absolutely. Um, one of my favorite quotes that I've used before in a previous episode is from Elder Holland. And he said, it is not possible for you to sink lower than the infinite light of Christ's atonement. I really am coming to believe that as I hear people's stories, when they've, when they've come from dark places and because of their faith in Christ, and his atoning sacrifice, they have been able to be healed and made into new creatures. And that is what his promise is to us. I feel like for those that are in the midst of addiction or that have addictive behaviors, oftentimes what's associated with our thinking patterns is when we mess up or when we make mistakes, the adversary will use that guilt to make us feel like we are not worthy. And part of those addictive behaviors is we tend to want to recluse or distance ourselves from the stress, the guilt, the shame attached to the, the action or the, the um, mistake that we made. And that is purely, it's ingrained to our behaviors and it's, it's just, it's literally a tool that the adversary will use to get us to turn away from God. Um, and it, not only turn away, but keep us away from God. Cause at that point we have turned away. It's just, a, it's to keep us pinned in our corner and to not turn back. So when you say that, I, I know for certain that that's true. Um, that when we feel hopelessness, that when we feel that we're not good enough, that, we need to understand that we are that God, that he's aware of us, that he knows our needs, that his plan is specific to um, help us get out of that, that pit. I've been there so many times in my life where I felt that shame. I felt that incompleteness. I felt, I felt that loneliness and, I've, I've been on the other end of it where Christ has met me where I'm at and he's pulled me up and he's dusted me off and he's given me the enabling power to change. I love it. That's really inspiring. You went through that two-year process of repenting and preparing to serve a mission and you served a successful two-year mission in Baltimore, as I mentioned in your bio. Is there any part of your mission experience that you would feel like sharing any individual you met that you felt like your experience 
well, you were prepared to meet the needs of that person that you taught. Does that make sense? You know, I, I don't think it comes in the ways that people would think it would, you know, it doesn't come with me going out there and, you know, sharing my story with somebody. Um, what I think father was able to do is he took those experiences, which I had went through and he blessed me with, with gifts and talents that, um, would allow me to, to help others. Um, so really it's him that was doing it. You know, it's like he, he saw the instrument that was before him and he played it accordingly. That makes sense. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and that was manifest in different ways. So, um, my, I felt like my companions were able to see that. I felt like my mission president, um, was able to see that people that we were teaching, I was able to discern their needs. Um, I was blessed with the gift of faith, um, because of my experience, which allowed me to have confidence in stressful situations and, I've learned that if you have unwavering faith, that the Lord will always meet you. Um, I could tell you countless stories of, you know, us not seeing success and us working our tails off. And at the last moment of the day, um, the very last minute, all of a sudden a miracle takes place. And the Lord knew that I would be willing to push harder than most. If there's anything that my experiences gave me, it was, the ability to be able to um, just get out of the way and trust in the Lord to do his work. And he did it. So maybe moving even beyond your mission, how do you feel like the experiences that you've had difficult and painful as they've been, how have those experiences prepared you to continue to provide unique help and strength within the church and outside of the church? You know, once again, I get asked this question quite a bit too, but I, I feel unworthy to answer it properly because I still feel like I'm always working on myself and I feel inadequate. So like the really cool experiences that I've had, I almost feel like Heavenly Father is just <laughs> giving me, blessing me with opportunities to, to be able to participate. Like for instance, I've had... Uh, multiple of my friends enter into the waters of baptism since I've gotten home from my mission. Hmm. Um, I've had, I've, I've, I'm currently serve as a ward mission leader. I, I've been able to take the things which I learned on my mission, the things my mission president taught me. I, I firmly believe that the Lord calls us to serve where we serve because he knows, like, I, I think sometimes we're called to be there with our mission presidents. I, I, I feel like both of the mission presidents I had taught me so much and um, the Lord knew I needed to be with them. So like when I come back home from my mission and I'm serving in a calling, it's like the things that I was able to learn I've implemented and I've seen the, the results of people coming back uh, um, unto the church or being baptized and, um, I just look at it all and I realize that like, those are things I need. I need to be a part of that. And so it feels more like a blessing. Um, mm -hmm. If that makes sense. Like I, I don't feel like I feel more inadequate. <laughs> like mm -hmm. I'm unworthy to be a part of it. 
but the Lord is blessing me with it, if that makes sense. So um, I don't feel like it's of anything to do with what I've done. That shows your, your humility and your recognition of where your power comes from. And it comes from above. And so any, any good thing that we are, or any good thing that we do is not because of us. It is always because of our heavenly father working through us and giving us gifts and experience so that we can bless his children. And so your recognition of that tells me that you will continue to be an instrument in his hands to do good. We've been talking a lot about this idea of believing Christ. And I I really do feel like so much of the difficulty that people have within the church happens because they feel inadequate. They feel like I'm not celestial material. I'm not good enough to become what Heavenly Father intends me to become. And I believe it's because they have taken the Savior out of the equation. And so what would you say to someone who feels like they, they are not good enough, that they are beyond help? My immediate thought is, is that you don't have to be good enough. That the Savior paid the price. And that through his grace, through his love, mercy, the fact that he's consistent, unchangeable, um, that he has the knowledge that if we just place faith in him, that he'll meet us where we're at and help us become what we need to be. I think the fears that are associated with that inadequacy are just tools of the adversary. I firmly believe that God and Christ possessed all the attributes that we need in order to place confidence within them without reservation. So at that point, it's just a matter of trust. You put that so well. So maybe taking it a step further, what would you tell someone who is a loved one of someone who's struggling with addiction or those feelings of inadequacy? If it comes in the context of individuals that have loved ones that are battling with addiction, what role they play in that, I always reflect on my mother and um, what she was able to do for me. And I also think of my grandparents and what they were able to do for her. In fact, um, there's a scripture in Second Nephi chapter 9, verse 53. It says, and behold how great the covenants of the Lord and how great his condescensions unto the children of men. And because of his greatness and his grace and mercy, he has promised unto us that our seed shall not utterly be destroyed according to the flesh, but that he would preserve them. And in future generations, they shall become a righteous branch under the house of Israel. I love that because it places um, first and foremost uh, an importance on the covenants, which is we make with the Lord. So the fact that my grandparents were covenant, covenant keepers, that they loved, they chose to love my mom for who she was, despite what she, she like, wasn't becoming in a way, like they chose to love her for where she was at. And eventually when the time and place was right and she was ready to come back, the environment was created for her to come back and she knew where to turn to or turn to in in terms of a source to get out of there and my mom was that same thing for me Um, I love that scripture also because it says how great his condescensions under the children of men anytime I hear that word 
condescension. I think of Christ's atonement. I think of the reality that he is the son of God because of the fact that he possesses the attributes of his father and the attributes of a mortal mother. Um, he was able to perform the atonement. That's his what, that's how I view the condescension. And so if he was able to come down here, perform the atonement and do all those things, it reminds me that I should trust in him. Um, so for any parents, I would always invite them to just continue to keep your covenants, continue to love the Lord. And even though your family members or loved ones or whoever it may be um, are struggling and battling with their own faith crisis or whatever, you just got to be there and create the environment um, to where the Lord can do his work. I love it. I think you're so spot on. I think there's really, there's a lot of power in those covenants. So, and I love that scripture. I'm going to, I'm going to look at that and study that a little more. Thank you for sharing that. The The final question that I always ask Caden, the title of my podcast is obviously still rowing. Um, but I like to ask why you are still rowing, why you're still in the old ship Zion and choosing faith in Christ and his restored church. I'm striving to do my best to remain on the ship because I've experienced what it's like to be off of it. Um, I don't want to go back. It's not always the case. Sometimes I, <laughs> I feel like I, I entertain what it would be like to not be in the gospel and so forth. Um, because being a member of the church isn't always easy. Sometimes, uh, it can be hard. Sometimes it can be trying, but I, I'm constantly reminded that the things that we are experiencing in this life are meant for our own personal gain. And that if we just endure them well, that the reward is so much greater than we can imagine. I've been able to taste that um and those moments where i've you know i i feel the lord's presence i i feel that he's close i just long for it i long for the day that i can see him that's why i keep rowing um it's an interesting way to put it but <laughs> i like it thank you for that honest answer i agree it's not always easy to be a member of the church it's not always rainbows and butterflies as i often say <laughs> and as elder holland put it christianity is comforting but it's not always comfortable and so it it, it takes work but i i think uh, our listeners appreciate your experience and testimony because you know what it feels like to be well outside of the boat and out of the safety of that ship so thank you so much, Caden, for sharing your time, your, your story, your testimony. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Still Rowing Podcast. If you would like a little daily motivation to keep rowing, you can find me on Instagram at Christ underscore sr underscore podcast and on Facebook at Church of Jesus Christ SR Podcast. Also, if you've been enjoying this podcast, if you would go to iTunes and leave us a rating and review, that would help us spread the word about still rowing. Thanks again for listening.